want to hear this episode ad-free? Hey, true crime friends. This is your host, Mary DePippi. And if you would like to hear your true crime in academia episodes completely ad-free, consider going to patreon.com slash ivorytowerboilerroom and become a subscriber. For $5 a month, you not only get access to now ad-free episodes of True Crime and Academia, but bonus episodes as well. Every month, I love to offer subscribers a bonus episode, such as Richard Ramirez, The Night Stalker, or Casey Anthony, or The John JonBenet Ramsey Killing. I mean, you name it, I want to cover it. So... The only way you can access that is to go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room and become a subscriber today. Like I said, it's only $5. I mean, think about it. I mean, you're really just buying me a coffee, which I know I say sometimes in my episodes, but it's true. And for all of the research and everything, you know, we put or I put into getting you these episodes, it would be nice just have a cup of coffee. So go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room and become a subscriber today so you can get access to those bonus episodes. And like I said, now especially add free episodes. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room and get your bonus episodes and ad free episodes today. Hey, true crime friends. Welcome back to another episode of True Crime in Academia. I am your host, Mary DePippi. I hope you all had a wonderful week this week. I hope you are all looking forward to a restful weekend. I know I sure am. Um, you know, not much, not much crazy has gone on with me. excuse me not much has gone on with me really too much in the last like week or anything um right now I'm just really looking forward to my vacation um my boyfriend and I were going down the shore the last week of August like slash first week of September and you know I'm getting just like so excited to you know just be down the shore in general and you know, just be in place to just, you know, enjoy the atmosphere. You know, I love the beach. So like, you know, to just have all that, like, I'm just so excited to be able to kind of really have that vacation experience. Cause I have literally not been on a vacation. I don't even know how long it's been that long. So <laughs> I'm so looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, otherwise everything's been pretty good, you know, I really can't complain too much, and I'm not going to. So let's get into this news update. There has been a lot going on in the true crime world this past week. So if, you know, you're thinking of a certain story that I haven't talked about in this episode, trust me, I'm trying to span it all out timely, you know, and as far as like as when I receive the information, um, which sometimes is the week before this, so you know, we might be talking about things that happened last week. Um, but yeah, so, you know, like I said, there was a lot going on. I'm going to try and get to as much of it as I can. Um, but this is what I've narrowed it down for this week. 
So this past Monday, People Magazine reported that a mother and her 16-year-old daughter, who obviously are remaining anonymous, they filed a lawsuit against Delta Airlines for their, quote, gross negligence, end quote, and how they, quote, blatantly ignored, end quote, the mother and daughter's cries for help as the drunk male passenger in their row verbally and sexually assaulted them. According to the $2 million lawsuit, during the nine-hour flight from JFK New York Airport to Athens, Greece, the man in their row from Connecticut was obviously intoxicated before he even boarded. The mother and daughter had told the flight attendants that this intoxicated man made them feel unsafe. But apparently the flight attendants allegedly continued to serve the man alcohol. During this nine-hour flight, it was said that he was served, and it seems like it was possibly proven uh, according to the lawsuit, he was served 10 vodka drinks and a glass of wine. I mean, for anyone to consume that amount of alcohol within that little of time, they are absolutely... And again, it's not like he had... It's not like he was drinking beers, you know, something on the lighter scale. Like, he was drinking straight-up liquor and wine. And I feel like we all forget that, like, wine is definitely more potent than beer. I feel like just because it's on the cheaper range, like, we forget that, like, it has, like, such a high alcohol content. You know, um... Not to say anything, but just to say that, like, it would be more than if he had (laughs) 10 vodka drinks and a beer. Because it is. Alcohol-wise, anyway. Um, But, yeah, the fact that they served it. I mean, I... In my experiences on an airplane, the fact that they even served him that much vodka is crazy to me. Especially when you have the mother and daughter, like the people who are literally sitting in his row explaining that his behavior is completely inappropriate. They do not feel safe or comfortable sitting near him. But yet they're still just going to serve him alcohol and act as if everything's fine and, you know, like as if he's sober or something. The lawsuit states that the man was yelling obscenities and made obscene gestures at the mother and daughter and demanded that the 16-year-old child, yes, child, People Magazine, I mean, I swear, if someone is under the age of 18, they are a fucking child. I have to go off on this tangent because it is so necessary. I am literally so sick of seeing these publications and news outlets calling teenage children or adolescent children women when there is some sort of sex crime involved. Because it honestly pushes the fucked up narrative that female children somehow are grown up like once we get our periods and become full on adults, especially when sex crimes are perpetrated against them. As if they are trying to perpetuate that because even though this teenage girl, this teenage child is willing or at least 
they want to perceive that she's maybe more willing or adult enough to understand the full situation that is occurring is absolute and complete and utter bullshit. And I am so sick of it, seeing it perpetuated in all of these publications. And it's not just this case. It's other cases that involve teenage you know, or adolescent girls. But yet, because they don't want the male offender to seem so horrible, they refer to them as women. And in this article, there was a moment where they referred to both the mother and daughter as women. And honestly, it set me off for the reasons I aforementioned. It ugh, irks my soul all of these news outlets, all of these journalists, y'all need to do fucking better. Because the way that you are writing your stories is only furthering this prejudice and only making it more difficult. Because let's face it, you know, if journalists and news outlets and the media were portraying these types of sexual crimes against teenage girls... Or even, you know, adolescent girls, you know, girls as young as 10 and 12, you know. If we stop perpetrating them as women and stop, you know, basically, basically giving leadway for these men who commit these crimes. Like I said, to make it seem as if what they did isn't bad because you're referring to these fucking children as women just because they're pubescent or prepubescent and are able to carry children. Like it just, oh my God, just stop it. When it involves a child, yes, a child under 18 Call a spade a fucking spade. If the person is under 18, they are a fucking child. Like I said, I am so sick of this double standard as if like, again, like it just seems that it is a way to protect the men that are perpetrating these crimes. Because yes, in 99.9% of these cases, I'm sorry, I'm making up that number, but in a good majority of these cases, you know, men are the perpetrators. And it just seems that labeling these teenagers and young adolescents as women just gives society a like a view as if they are actually adults when we all know like no fuck not they're, they're not because they're not so let's stop let's just stop you know we need to stop giving a shit about who or what gender the person is committing these sexual these sexually heinous crimes and just Label them for what they are. If you are going after someone who is between the or who is under the age of 18, you're a fucking pedophile. So, like, let's just call a spade a spade. And throughout the entirety, the fact that people and any other news source that I looked at for this did not say that he was a pedophile really pissed me off. And you're going to see even why more so in just 
a second. So back to what we were talking about. The 16-year-old child was demanded by this drunk asshole to tell him personal information. Like he just kept pressing for it. Things so personal like as her address. Meanwhile, her mother's sitting like right there. And at that point, she tells him, my daughter's a minor. Like, can you can you not? To which this man responded that he didn't care. And then proceeds to reach over the daughter because the daughter's in the middle between him and the mother and reaches over to grab the mother's arm. Now, the only assistance offered by the flight attendants in this situation when both the mother and daughter asked for help was to be patient. And the only other one who maybe had some sort of decency, but not enough, because she just said to the man, just stop talking to them. Yeah, because that fucking works. And apparently at this point, he called them, the mother and the daughter, both fucking bitches. (laughs) I mean, I don't like to always say this, but this man is a fucking walking abortion. I mean, he just is. Now, again, this drunk piece of shit actually, you know, again, to further my point beforehand... He actually put his, quote, clammy fingers, end quote, up the teen's shirt, touching the clasp of her bra strap, which caused her to have a panic attack and rightfully fucking so. I I mean, I feel like that's dealing with it well. Oh, my God. Everything in me just wants to torture the shit out of this man. So after this happens, the daughter gets up. The man then proceeds to put his hand on the mother's leg and moved it up to the inside of her thigh. Like her daughter, she also jumped up out of her seat. Now the mother had asked to have her and her daughter's seats moved because they were just like, we don't feel safe next to this dude. Like, this is what's going. He's touching us. This is what's happening. But they were told that there was nothing they could do. Yeah. Mm hmm. <sighs> Don't even. I. Mm, mm. Let's just continue with this case. I just hit my mic. I'm sorry, guys. So, thankfully, another passenger on board, a man who is watching all of this happen is finally just like has had he's just like I've had enough so he volunteers to switch seats with the teen girl and sits between the mother and the drunk dude the rest of the flight now after the plane landed this drunk asshole from Connecticut this drunk asshole pervert predator pedophile piece of fucking shit who deserves to rot in hell for the rest of his goddamn fucking life if not longer he was able to just get off the plane and go on his merry way because the flight attendants didn't find it necessary to follow protocol and alert the local authorities or the U.S. law enforcement about the situation with him. So he was just able to go on his merry fucking way and do whatever he wanted to do in fucking Greece. Which in, you know, whatever. But what makes it worse 
is that the only thing Delta did do in response to this incident was offer the mother and daughter a measly 5,000 miles and a fucking apology. Now, (laughs) I have flown a few times for work and both times I have flown American Airlines. With both of those flights that I had taken... I maybe I maybe I maybe have roughly like 3000 miles, maybe a little bit more. I mean, I haven't checked. But, you know, for one I feel like the flight from Texas or from Philly to Texas and then Texas to Philly was like a 25,000 mile trip. So, just to put it in perspective, you know, like, that was one three and a quarter hour flight, you know. They were on a fucking nine hour flight in their situation and being fucking sexually and verbally assaulted by the person in their row. And the the airlines just aren't doing shit. So, like, yeah. Just to put that in perspective, like, for me personally... Like, Delta can take that 5,000 miles and that stupid-ass, half-assed apology and shove it up their fucking asses. Honestly, they are lucky that these women are only suing for $2 million. Now, at this point, and up until today, Delta has not commented on the situation, but if I haven't made it clear, fuck you, Delta. And fuck that drunk-ass predator from Connecticut. Like, I seriously hope the cops or someone finds you and either kicks your ass so fucking hard or that the cops find you and throw you in jail. But, I mean, at the end of the day, like, I hope that mother and daughter at least get that $2 million. Like I said, those women deserve... Sorry, not those women. That mother and her daughter deserve that two million dollars in fact i think they deserve at least a minimum of five but that is my own personal opinion the next story we have comes from charleston west virginia now in charleston west virginia a school district had to pay out over 11 million dollars in lawsuits because of a teacher who was alleged to have abused her special ed students in her classroom Elementary school teacher Nancy Boggs was caught on surveillance camera abusing several of her students at Holtz Elementary School. She admitted to authorities to having hit one student with a cabinet door, pulling her hair, and pulling her chair from out from under her. She also admitted to having slammed another student's head into a desk and admitted to slapping a third. I mean, what the actual fuck? I mean, I mean, seriously, I mean, she is, phys- I mean, again, any sort of abuse is absolutely horrible. But the fact that she is physically abusing these students and it didn't get anyone's attention sooner, I personally am just shocked. Thankfully, this strengthened the case in West Virginia to have cameras in classrooms. Boggs was sentenced to 10 years in prison last August for her crimes. Thank 
fucking God. And this is said to have been one of the biggest settlements against a school board in West Virginia history. Now, the last story I have for you in this news update, it's kind of a little bit of a celebrity news, very more of a D-list celebrity. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but just throwing that out here. Um, It personally caught my attention because I used to watch this show as a child and adolescent. So, you know... Again, that's just why it caught my eye, because I knew the person involved. So, Zachary Ty Bryant, he played the oldest brother on the hit show Home Improvement, which is around probably, I want to say, late 90s, maybe, or just early 2000s, like, you know, beginning of 2000s, possibly. Um, So, yeah, he played the oldest brother. Again, this was a show me and my sister grew up watching, loved this show. It was just great. Jonathan Taylor Thomas played the middle child on this show for any, you know, GRJTT fans out there. Um, But yeah, so in this Tim Allen led show, this guy played the oldest son, you know, his oldest son. And he was actually arrested on Friday, July 28th on charges of felony assault. Police responded to a call reporting a physical dispute between a man and an unnamed woman. 41-year-old Zachary Ty Bryant was not present at the time when law enforcement arrived on the scene, but he was later tracked down and taken into the local jail where he was booked. Now, three years prior, Brian was arrested on similar charges for the assault of his then-girlfriend, which included charges of strangulation. I also just want to mention that he has children with this woman and also has four... I think he had three children with this woman and then four children from another marriage. Um, But I'm not 100% sure, so don't quote me on that. But we're looking at, you know, a possible seven children who are affected essentially by this because again you know if you have an assault charge it's not like they're just gonna let you see your kids (laughs) you know what I mean Zachary Ty Bryant pled guilty to the two lesser charges being a misdemeanor menacing and misdemeanor assault now I just want to point out that when he was interviewed about the previous assault that included strangulation in October 2020, he kind of tried to make it out that the cops were just throwing charges at him and that the whole thing was blown out of proportion. I personally do not believe that. Now, you know, again, aside from these two assault charges, especially against women, which would be considered domestic violence charges, this also isn't the first time that Zachary Ty Bryant has had a run-in with the law. In the past, he's been accused of fraud and a string of DUI arrests. Now, the former actor states that he has started drinking at the age of 14, a habit that he claims to have stepped away from. I hope that that's the case, but also, I mean... When he was convicted the first time, or not convicted, but when the assault charges came around the first time, he did have to go to a violence prevention program. Um, 
you know, however, from what we're seeing now, I can't say that it fully worked. I mean, I understand we all have our moments, but this is... <sighs> it's just so severe that it's just one of those things that, like... It's hard to forgive when you... I mean, not hard to... Yeah, hard to forgive when you slip up because the action and the repercussions are just so huge. So to just slip... You know, and again, we're all human. I'm not saying we're not human. And I'm not in any way sticking up for this piece of shit who seems to have a problem with hitting women. Again, I may have loved him on the show as the oldest sibling of, you know, Tim Allen. But... <laughs> you know, I'm not going to sit here and act like <laughs> what he's doing is okay because, you know, he had a drinking habit at 16 because people were like, oh my God, you're the kid from Home Improvement. You can come into my bar. Like, <sighs> it's a sad situation all around. But as I said time and time before, the second you become adult or become an adult, and under and really have an understanding of the difference between right and wrong because of what society is telling you when you go against that it's just it's on you you know you can't blame anyone else for that shit because you can blame anyone and everyone for your shitty childhood but you can't sit there without having done anything to improve your further circumstances and try to blame people from your past of how your future is affected you know like I said at a certain age you have the ability to change that and if you decide not to then you know you have to suffer those consequences so you know again right now this is all alleged I did just find out that he was released this morning and is scheduled to appear in court on September 5th. So whoever he had, whatever, whoever the unknown female is, clearly in that argument, she is not, you know, stepping away from the charges. Like, she is still very much pressing charges. So, you know, we'll see how that goes. I will try to keep you guys updated with that. This week, I have a very interesting case for you all. Um, it sort of fits with the horror films that are out right now. And I hate to even do that, but it didn't happen on purpose. Um, it was just a case that I had wanted to talk about. And, you know, kind of had more of the time to relax and enjoy the research for this. So... You know, again, like I said, it just so happened to coincide sort of with one of the more popular horror films right now that rhymes with the word cream. I know that was a horrible clue. <laughs> anyway, we're going to take a little quick break and then we will get into this week's case. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I am so excited to be talking about Broadview Press. You might be asking, what is Broadview Press, Andrew? Broadview is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities mainly English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, just to name a few genres, and recently, 
I had on Dr. Jason Holt, who wrote all about the philosophy of sport. And what better summer episode than to talk about what happens when a philosopher dissects the beautiful aesthetics of sporting culture. In the spring, I had on doctors Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez to talk about what is sound writing, how to make audio projects in the college classroom, how to even have your students create podcasts. And then in the winter, I had on Dr. Dr. Jeffrey Weinstock. He talked about analyzing pop culture. Yes, I even sneak in some Real Housewives questions. And how to teach composition and make it fun. He uses this whole metaphor about being a mad scientist in this gothic lab. And in the fall, I had on Dr. Ann Stevens, and she talked about literary theory and criticism. And yes, the university season is upon us. So what better way to talk about the college classroom than to actually understand what is literary theory? That's a wonderful episode for all of you out there who teach literary studies. I love Broadview Press. Make sure you use their exclusive code. It's Ivory Tower. On broadviewpress.com, you get 20% off all, all Broadview Press publications. Okay, until the next Broadview Press interview, and now back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an exciting ITBR episode to talk to you about one of our sponsors, the Gay and Lesbian Review. Discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture with a subscription to the Gay and Lesbian Review, a bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and our popular art memo column. Each issue of the Gay and Lesbian Review brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme, and it brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, but you will definitely find articles about online dating, like using Grindr as a social phenomenon, or even the gay influence on 20th century fashion. Did you know that I've actually interviewed three gay and lesbian review contributors? Make sure you listen to my Ignacio Darnod Breaking the Gay Code in Art episode, where Ignacio explains that key artistic figures like Michelangelo, Donatello, Thomas Eakins, J.C. Leyendecker, and Thomas Finlan all have really explicit homoerotic artwork. And then head on over to the next episode where I talk with Dr. Vernon Rosario about LGBTQ psychiatry and how homosexuality got depathologized. And our most recent episode was with the Gay and Lesbian Review's literary editor, Martha E. Stone, and she talks about what LGBTQ literature you should be reading this summer and also how to become a contributing writer and a reviewer for the Gay and Lesbian Review. To subscribe, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR to receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. And as an added bonus, you also receive online access to all of the Gay and Lesbian Review's archived issues. All of them. 
Okay, enjoy your reading, everyone. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved recently by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot org. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of the homepage. And if you have any questions, email publisher Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. On this podcast before, we had covered the serial killer who was the inspiration for the Scream franchise. However, in today's case, we are going to get into a duo of teenagers who really idolized the film and as you'll see you know there's a lot of similarities between this case and the film that was based off of Danny Rowling on January 24th 2006 police received a call from a woman who seemed to be hysterical the woman's 13 year old daughter had made a gruesome discovery the woman told the dispatcher that there's a girl dead on my floor. She's missing a finger, end quote. Idaho State Police rushed to the scene. Lieutenant Robert Roush was the first to arrive to find the young girl laying on the floor. He stated that there was blood everywhere. The young girl would be identified to be 16-year-old Cassie Stoddart, who had been dog-sitting for her aunt and uncle, the weekend that she was brutally murdered. Cassie Jo Stoddard was born on December 21, 1989, in Picatello, Idaho. By all accounts, Cassie was a normal, straight-A, Pocatello High School student and the middle child of two other siblings within her family. Now, she seemed to have a close relationship with both her immediate family and extended family, she had a bunch of friends and a steady boyfriend at the time named Matthew Beckham. Now, Cassie was a very responsible girl, and she was currently saving up money to buy a car. So she took up many jobs babysitting, specifically for her cousins. But she also did some other odd jobs, like house-sitting as well. On Friday, September 22nd 2006 Cassie's mom Anne picked Cassie up from school and dropped her off at her aunt and uncle's house 
because Cassie had agreed to dog and cat sit for them while they were going away over the weekend. Now, their house was in a neighborhood called Whispering Cliffs, which, you know, it's a little, that's an interesting name. I, and, you know, when obviously as we discover what happened here, it seems more creepy, but initially it's semi-ominous. It's not as ominous, I think, as, you know, one initially would think, you know. Because obviously the people who are coming up with these housing areas, again, you know, my knowledge from my home search here, you know, they're not calling these things, you know, to be creepy or anything. They're trying to make them enticing. However, though, I would argue that not everyone is good at naming things. And this was just, you know, maybe one of those circumstances in which maybe someone sh- someone else should have taken the responsibility of <laughs> naming this neighborhood. But anyway, the area where they were was generally pretty quiet. And there were neighbors, but they were pretty spread out. So again, you kind of have like this you know, area where it's not necessarily, like, totally urban, not urban, but, like, it's not rural or any, by any means, you know, it's just, you, to me, it feels like you more of have, like, these rich people who want land and space from their neighbors without totally being separated from the rest of society, if you will. That's, that's just my read on the place. Now, Cassie was an extremely responsible kid. And, you know, like I had said, she had a city boyfriend. So being responsible, she asked her aunt and uncle and her parents, you know, it would, if it would be okay if her boyfriend, Matt, came over to the house while she was house-sitting to hang out with her, you know, during the weekend, you know, to keep her company. And like I said, she was a responsible kid. So, of course, they were like, yeah, sure, no problem. You know, she was trustworthy, and they trusted her, and rightfully so. At some point, Anne, Cassie's mother, calls in to check on her at around 9.30 that night. And Cassie tells her that, you know, she and her boyfriend, they're just watching some movies, but she'll call her the next day. Now, Cassie's boyfriend, Matt, had invited two of his friends over, Brian Draper and Tori Adamsick. They also went to the same high school. So at first, Cassie is kind of like annoyed because she's like, look, you know, again, she's a responsible kid. So she's just like, look, I only asked if it was okay if you could come over and now you're inviting these dudes over. Like, that's not okay. Which, of course, it's not. You know, but of course, her boyfriend, and again, they're young, they're 16. I'm not trying to like label. her boyfriend as a bad person or anything but you know he's just acting like a normal 16 year old dude would it's kind of just like hey no it's gonna be okay nothing's gonna happen we're all just gonna hang out and watch a movie which they do and you know brian and tori were basically it seemed like they weren't aware of the situation (laughs) they thought they were walking into a party so at some point they decide they're gonna go leave and they want to see a movie About 15 minutes after they leave, there is a brief power outage. And, you know, at first they were thinking about going down to where, in the basement where the circuit breaker was to see if something was wrong. But eventually they're kind of like, no, we're just not feeling it. Let's not do it. So they didn't. 
And eventually, some of the power did go back on, but it wasn't all of it. Now, Cassie's boyfriend, Matt, really did want to stay with her because, understandably, she was a little freaked out. As I also would have been as a 16-year-old house-slash-pet sitter at this moment in time when the power's going out for seemingly no reason. You know, I can't say that I don't blame her for you know, wanting to have him stay with her or, you know, even maybe just like wanting to not be there. But ultimately, she decided to stay there because she felt she needed to be responsible. And ultimately, and understandably, Matt's parents didn't want him to stay overnight with her because obviously they're 16, you know, Again, I'm not saying every 16-year-old couple is boning out there. Because, again, that's gross also for me as an adult woman to even throw that out there. Even though I was a teenager myself and was totally doing that shit. But, you know, let's not be ignorant to the fact that that happens. And, you know, so to some extent I can understand Matt's mother not wanting them to spend the night together. You know, wanting to avoid, you know complications that can sometimes come with that I get it I'm not I'm not blaming her I'm not blaming Matt I'm not blaming anyone in this situation except for the people who did it which we will get into but you know obviously this just was like to me this just felt like a catch-22 situation because like I said Cassie really didn't want to leave Matt's mother did offer you know to take her home with Matt you know because it wasn't like the whole notion of them sleeping in the same building together that was a problem it was just you know the lack of adult supervision you know as such with any parent of a teenage child like you know again this situation makes sense however like I said Cassie just felt like she really needed to be there because she was responsible for the animal so she declines the offer from Matt's mother So, it was said that around 11.15 that night, Matt was picked up by his mother. Now, it was also stated that at 12.30, Matt had tried to get in touch with her, but she never answered. Which, you know, may not be totally strange because at the time, you know, she might have just, you know, she's all by herself. Like, it's not like she has a plethora of entertainment in front of her. You know, you can only watch so so many movies, so... You know, the notion that she might have just decided to go to bed after he left wasn't so far-fetched. However, two days later, Cassie was discovered dead by her younger cousin. When investigators assessed the scene, they could not find any signs of forced entry. And even further, there was nothing taken from the home. So police quickly ruled out a robbery gone wrong and instead felt that Cassie must have known her killer and let them in. Now, Cassie's autopsy revealed that she had been stabbed approximately 30 times. Out of those 30 stab wounds, 9 to 12 of those wounds were actually fatal. They would also be able to tell that Cassie would, like, she put up a fight because she had defensive wounds. So police suspected even more that she was killed by someone she knew. Again, aside from the fact that it didn't seem like there was a forced entry. 
because as we all know, and, you know, obviously there are exceptions. I always want to point out that there are exceptions. Not everyone is the same, but in this situation, this follows the rule. Because as we all know, stabbing someone is a very personal method of murder because of the close proximity, coupled with the fact that, you know, there were over 10, I mean, <laughs> that's a lot of energy. That's a lot of anger to have the ability and energy to stab someone that amount of times, you know, and rightfully so, the police just seem that her murder was motivated by personal reasons. Now, police, of course, zeroed in on her boyfriend, Matt, because not only was he her boyfriend, but he was the last person to see her alive. So, you know, at first, police reported that Matt seemed to be very blank and didn't seem to show much, if any, emotion whenever they spoke with him. And, you know, again, like, not just here, but other podcasts, like, you know, it's been discussed that not everybody deals, you know, everybody deals with grief differently. And, you know, people shouldn't be judged on that first initial interview, discussion, whatever, after finding out that someone they love and care about is dead. And, you know, to some extent, I totally agree with that especially and like this is a situation where I do feel that way you know oh geez I just hit my mic sorry if you heard that um but you know obviously there are other situations where people are faking that and you know but like I said this is not that case and like I said we really do need to take into account that everyone deals with grief differently and I do think that during these interrogations Matt was just truly in a state of shock you know because he was factual and like I said the only complaint that police had was that he just wasn't showing any emotion which again I can't imagine being in his shoes so you know if he's already not an emotive person to begin with like (laughs) what do you expect in this situation especially when he feels such pressure to give all of the facts you know, to find out who actually killed his girlfriend. You know what I mean? So, you know, again, I take that with a grain of salt, as y'all should too. One thing that Matt did state to police was that how one of the dogs was acting quite strange. So essentially, this dog was, you know, when the power outages were occurring, essentially this dog was kind of sitting by the basement door and kind of just staring at it. And he also said that this dog would go back and forth between staring at them and then, like, walking over to the basement door and then sitting and staring at that. Um, But that also the dog would growl and, like, kind of, like, again, just had this very strange behavior towards the basement. Um You know, and again, I would never shame anyone. I personally am someone who takes a animal's reaction into consideration for certain things. Um, Honestly, again, having had a dog myself or having had multiple dogs myself, I understand how 
dogs read different situations differently. So, for example, like our late dog, Houston, he was not a fan of not only storms, which also our late uh, our other late dog, Elise, had problems with, you know, but he also had problems when the power went out. And, like, felt very, you know, you just, he just seemed more skittish and was just not okay until the power went back on. You know, so, again, I'm not saying, like, I'm not trying to detract from the fact that this dog absolutely knew something sinister was going on because he 100% did. I'm just also trying to, you know, empathize with the fact that here were two teenagers, two two children who are trying to, you know, they're being left alone in this huge house for the first time, maybe by themselves, you know, she's house sitting, you know, they can, you know, have a little more freedom, things like that, you know, so, you know, and the fact that your dog's sitting and to see the animals react, or at least this one animal in particular, this one dog in particular act this way, you know, could absolutely be seen as creepy and something is going wrong as, sadly, that is true for this case. But then, like I said, you also have to think of it on the flip side of, you know, if you would just have a dog who's extremely nervous and is just reacting. And I can imagine that this dog, you know, I don't know. I feel like dogs are animals are very sensitive so to certain things and or at least some of them are. You know. So again, having had an animal who was sensitive to the power going out, you know, I can sort of relate to not knowing what to do with this strange behavior. So, long story short, they just weren't really sure, you know, because again, they're teenagers. They're not sure how to read this situation. Matt does eventually go home because, you know, mama's orders, but he does try to call Tori and he does get a hold of him and Tori is whispering on the phone with him, but he's also not finding that weird because he's, you know, Tori and Brian were going to the movies anyway, so he didn't think much of it. Now, the next day, Matt said he hung out with Tori, and he did tell police that he had tried to call Cassie that entire weekend, but couldn't get a hold of her. And like I said previously, this was the early 2000s. So again, someone not getting back to you, like especially if this was like a girlfriend-boyfriend dispute, like the fact that your boyfriend or your girlfriend didn't respond to you that weekend that wasn't a huge red flag you know there was a landline you could call there was an aim address that you could send an instant message to like there were other ways to get in touch with people but also at the same time not being able to be in touch with people was not a huge concern like it is today at this point, police decide that it's important to bring in Brian and Tori, Matt's friends. Now, Brian and Tori both admitted to cops that they were huge into movies, always wanting to make movies for themselves, you know, and just wanting to star in their own movies. You know, just your normal aspiring film actors, if you will. 
Now, they did tell police that their favorite genre of film was horror. Now, of the two of them, Brian seemed to be the more outgoing. And he did admit to police that he did have a huge crush on Cassie. However, she was dating Matt. So the two of them just decided that they would be friends. Tori, on the other hand, seemed to be more of an outcast who kind of had a hard time fitting in. It was also said that he idolized the Columbine killers, which, you know, that never goes well for anyone. I mean, of all of the people in the world to idolize... They are just not the people that I would idolize. But yet, here we are. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order... Just slide into her DMs, and if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So, go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It, and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, and order today. Hi, everyone. This is Andrew, and I am interrupting what I know is such an exciting Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode to tell you all about one of my favorite podcasts. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema, and it's hosted by Christian Garcia. Christian is joined with guest co-hosts to talk about classic cinema films that we know and love, and he analyzes them through a queer lens. So, He's talked about The Sound of Music, Alfred Hitchcock, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, and recently, Hello, Dolly. I actually was on his first ever episode to talk about my love of The Sound of Music and playing Captain Von Trapp in my high school musical. Then I was joined with Mary DePippi, the host of True Crime in Academia, and our friend Travis Roundtree to talk about Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Mary just had Christian on True Crime and Academia to talk about female poisoners, including the evil queen from Snow White and actual real life female poisoners. So Christian's podcast is the best. You must add it to your listen list. After you listen to this episode, make sure you head over to That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Apple and Spotify. Make sure you follow him on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And he's also on TikTok. Don't forget TikTok. Okay. I can't wait for you you all to listen to That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And now back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. 
Brian and Tori tell police that they went to Cassie's aunt and uncle's house thinking that there was going to be some sort of party. And when they realized they that there wasn't, they kind of got pissed and decided that they wanted to go to the movies. Now, that seemed to be corroborated by the movie tickets they had from that night. Now, all three boys were brought back in for questioning, and Matt is subjected to a polygraph test, which, again, this was early 2000s, and we thought that the polygraph test was a reliable and scientifically proven method of interrogation, which obviously today we all know that's bullshit. (laughs) It can't actually figure out if someone's lying or not. It just picks up changes, I believe, in your heart rate and things like that. So, you know, obviously we know that that's not okay. Also, I'm kind of like annoyed because Matt is 16 years old. I mean, I'm sure they had to get his parents' permission and things like that. But, you know, I don't know. I just That just feels so extreme. Such an extreme tactic to use on a child. So... I don't know. Like I said, it just seems wrong. Matt, though, passes with flying colors, which I don't like to give things away, but as he should have, (laughs) because he didn't do anything. So, of course, because of this, they start looking at Brian and Tori. Investigators pressed the boys about what movie they saw, but neither of them could actually remember the title, the plot, or who starred in the film. Brian kind of just kept saying that he thought it was boring and, you know, just really wasn't paying attention. But given the fact that these boys had bragged about being quote unquote movie gods, it just seems strange that they wouldn't remember the most basic of details. Now, police, of course, went to the movie theater to talk to the employees who worked that night that Brian and Tori said that they were supposedly there. Now, one of the girls who worked there that night and was working at the ticket booth said she knew both of the boys because they went to the same high school. When asked if she remembered seeing them that night, she was like, no, because she would have remembered seeing them because she was specifically the person letting everybody in. Now, of course, police are like, what the hell is going on? So they bring Brian and Tori back in again. Now, this time, Brian's demeanor throughout just gets meeker and meeker with each interaction and this specific time he just starts crying brian tells them that while they were watching the movie at the house with cassie and matt he decided to sneak away to you know use the bathroom but instead he decided to go into the basement and unlock the back door um because it's one of those basements that leads to the outside um I don't know why, sorry, this is such a random side tangent because it really has nothing to do with the case other than the architecture of this house. But I always find these, like, I call them half basements because they're not full basement because, I mean, at least to me, that implies that the whole basement area is underground. But, like, in houses like this, only half is. So is it really, like, a full basement you know I don't know this is just one of the things that is coming up with (laughs) house hunting and looking at different houses I'm just like but is that really a full basement it leads to the outside not like one of those ones like the cellar kind of doors opening like the old school ones that you see in the city and stuff like that 
But like, you know, the whole, you could, it's just open directly to the backyard. And usually what is considered the first floor has some sort of like deck situation, like above. So, but yeah, sorry. Such a random tangent. (laughs) Does not even matter. Let's get back to this case. So, Brian said that he did this, unlocked the back door from the basement, because he and Tori decided that they were going to play a prank on Matt and Cassie. So, instead of going to the movies, Brian stated that he and Tori went around the back and back into the house from the open basement door. He said that they brought knives, creepy clown masks, and all black clothing to change into. And Brian claimed that they did this because, and like brought all this stuff, because they wanted this prank to seem very realistic. Now he said that he and Tori hung out in the basement for a little while to wait for the right moment. And during this time they started playing with the circuit breaker because they wanted to turn the lights on and off like, you guessed it, in the movie Scream. Because, of course, that you know, if you're a film buff, like these guys are, that movie was out at the time. Wonderful film. I just hate when people make art imitate life like this. Even though it was technically based off of a serial killer in which the art was imitating life, and now life is imitating the art. It's a, it's a full circle moment, I guess, here, guys. But, of course, full circle in the worst possible way. Anyway, they decided that they were going to wait for Matt and Cassie to come downstairs to investigate the power flickering. And then they were just going to pop out and scare them. That never happened, according to Brian. So they continued. They'd kind of actually just put the lights half on, half off. I honestly think that they really didn't know what they were doing and were kind of just like, all right, well, I guess this is good enough. Personally, that's what I think, because why would they admit that they were fucking around and really didn't know what they were doing? Anyway, at this point, Matt leaves because his mom tells him he has to. So they decide that they're just going to mess with Cassie. Because I'm assuming they can hear this from the basement. So they thought, okay, when she comes downstairs to investigate, that's when we'll do it. But of course, she didn't because she's fucking smart. You know? And some, especially like if you have a bad feeling, like if I would have seen the dog doing that, I'm like, I'm not going down there until further notice. In fact, I think I'd lock the door leading if there was a way to, personally. But, you know, when you hear a noise, things like that start going on, you don't go check it out. And she didn't. And this is, you know, again, an exception to that rule, which is a very sad, sad, sad exception. Now, Brian stated that Tori was just super amped up and stated that he needed to, quote, kill her, end quote. And he said that this freaked him out. So the two eventually went upstairs and Brian claimed that Tori started attacking Cassie and stabbing her with the knives that they had brought. Brian claims that he never touched Cassie. But over time, Brian would change his story and say that he actually did stab her a few times, but it was because Tori told him to. And at that point, Brian was scared of Tori, supposedly. Brian said once Cassie was dead, they gathered the evidence 
put it in a bag and took it to a wooded area to be buried. Brian did actually take police to the location where they buried the bag of evidence and police were able to confiscate it. Inside of the bag, they found the multiple knives, clown masks, stick matches, gloves, a pair of rubber boots, a couple of videotapes, and a melted hydrogen peroxide bottle, which it's weird and is never fully explained. I'm assuming that had to do with their cleanup and maybe it just got burned in a different situation. Who knows? But yeah. That's one of the pieces of evidence, I apologize, that isn't fully explained, like, what role it played, but, you know, that it was there and considered evidence. So, you know, police just start looking through these tapes, and guess what they find? Evidence of premeditation, of course. Because at one point in the video, the boys start to say that, you know, Cassie has to die, which is very damning. They also talk about how excited they are to kill someone and what's interesting is the most excited person in this video seems to be Brian you know the one who's claiming that he was being forced to do this thankfully the boys did not tape the murder itself but they did record and like record on the videotape right after the murder basically boasting about everything because of these tapes, police now know that both boys are fully involved in this and, you know, that this just wasn't a spur of the moment. This wasn't a prank gone wrong like they had initially tried to claim, but that it was, in fact, premeditated. Now, of course, both boys kept saying that it was an accident and kept pointing the finger at one another. But obviously, these videos have the evidence of them planning this and, you know, saying that they wanted to kill her and they were excited to do this and, you know, blah, 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 blah. So, I mean, you know, they have evidence that proves otherwise. It's coming directly from their mouths, which, you know, could be misconstrued and we'll get into just a second. Now, police obtained surveillance footage from stores of the boys purchasing the knives and one of those knives that was found in the bag of evidence was actually used to kill Cassie. On September 27, 2006, Brian Draper and Tori Adamsick were arrested. At trial, they barely had a defense. Now, they were tried separately um, because you can't try co-conspirators necessarily, especially if you want to use one um, to testify against the other. But even still, I don't think you can do that anyway. Don't listen to me. I should have looked that up better before going into this tangent. But I think, like, I know for a fact that they were tried separately. But of course, you know, they just keep playing the blame game with each other, each saying that the other was more into it than the other, blah, 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 blah. Now, when asked about what was said on these videotapes... Both boys stated that they were just acting and that this was part of a movie they were making. Now, in most circumstances, this would be true if, in fact, there wasn't evidence of them in the house and on Cassie, which we'll get into very shortly. Um, you know, otherwise, that could have totally been the case. But because of everything that had occurred... <laughs> And the fact that the evidence, like I said, ties them there, it's it's not acting. You know, you kind of have to see through that one. If it was a totally different situation, maybe. But 
Not this time, boys. Not this time. But I feel like that also kind of shows the psyche of the boys a little bit and just like proves how young they are because they're thinking that if they say like they're we're acting, you know, they think that that's going to be a decent defense to get them out of this, you know. At Tory's trial, the evidence against him included a bloodstained shirt, glove, and knives with his fingerprints on it. And the clothing, you know, because of DNA, was proven to be worn by him. Now, what was interesting, because uh, the bloodstained shirt, I'm sorry, that DNA evidence matched, and, you know, the uh, knife and everything, that matched DNA of Cassie's. Now, what is interesting, though, is that the investigators did find male DNA samples under Cassie's fingernails. And the DNA was a match to Brian, but not to Tori. And it seemed like there might have been more than one. I think it's possible that that could have been from Matt. You know, if they're watching a scary movie, she's digging her fingers into him. Or, you know, if they're fooling around. And I don't want to get into that because they're teenagers. But you know what I'm just saying? You know, it's possible you know, that second DNA sample could have been completely unrelated. And since she was just recently hanging out with Matt, like, it's possible, you know? So, what, like I said, wasn't a match to Brian, but the one match was to Tori. Or, I'm sorry, it wasn't a match to Tori, but it was a match to Brian. However, it was revealed that, you know, Brian exclaims, I killed Cassie in the tape, in the recording after they killed her. Tori, on the other hand, doesn't say a thing. And his defense team does use that in their defense to state that, you know, Tori didn't have anything to do with it. Thankfully, the jury saw through all of this, and both boys were convicted and sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 30 years to life, depending. Both teens, well, obviously you can't have parole, if you're dead, but you know, between that time from any time, 30 years on, they would be able to have parole. Now, both teens filed appeals, of course, right away saying that there were several, several violations in the case and the trial. Brian stated that his parents were not present during his fourth interview. And that, that last one where he was crying and admitted everything. Um, and that, that interview needed to be thrown out. However, when they checked this, they looked at the tapes and everything because obviously interviews are recorded. Um, you know, it was checked out that the interview was done correctly. And, you know, Brian was actually given a waiver to sign. Like they read him his Miranda rights. Um, and I think the paper that he signed was to say that he didn't need his parents present. But during the interview, he does ask for his parents. And, of course, the interview then stops and they bring them in. You know, so, again, this trying to claim that the police did something wrong, which, sadly, isn't always far-fetched. But in this case, it was, you know, because they handled everything correctly. Now, Tory's defense team, on the other hand, he tried to, well, Tory specifically, tried to focus on the fact that he felt he had insufficient counsel saying that his lawyer should have been able to get some of the evidence suppressed. Um, he said that there was a search warrant that was executed, and it searched his room, specifically in Tori's parents' house. And his computers were seized, and they found evidence of child sexual assault materials and animal cruelty, which Tori felt were not listed on the search warrant. 
to which they should not have been able to take his computers and thus, you know, have that as evidence. Again, this was not, a pr- you know, the judge wasn't buying it and both appeals for the boys were denied. Now, in 2012, the Supreme Court in Idaho decided that juveniles should not be given life sentences for crimes, including murder. Which I'm not entirely mad about. I don't completely disagree. You are a very different person when you are a young child. But I just feel like depending on the circumstances and the age of the child should be taken into consideration. But in this case, like, I do think that these boys deserve majority of life in prison. You know, I'm not saying all. You know, again, they were teenagers. But they did take someone's life. And that should come with a hefty prison sentence. I mean, you know, the fact that they're even allowed to have parole after 30 years, I think they should be thankful for that. You know, And if it was a situation where they were denied parole, then maybe I would feel differently. Um, But the fact that I know that they're getting paroled, you know, in maybe 10 years now, because what, it was 2006? Yeah, so it's almost been 20 years. So, I mean, you know, and I'm not saying, obviously, the prison conditions are horrible and whatnot, but, (laughs) you know... Like I said, I have mixed feelings on this, but I do think there should be, you know, guidelines in place of how they decide that and what, you know, these stipulations should be. So if it's not life in prison, is it 50 years? You know, is it 60? You know, do you have a higher prison sentence, but still the opportunity to get out before, you know, you you die? So... You know, and some people I feel like could also argue the fact that that might be cruel to serve children life in prison. But I mean, again, these they're 16 and I like I said, they they are young, but they are also old enough to know that you can't just kill people. So I feel like that should be taken into consideration as well. But, you know, anyway, so because of this, you know, thankfully, though, the boys are not out. Like I said, they are still in prison. They have at least another 13 years before they are paroled. Both boys were featured in a documentary. I forget the name of it. Um, but if you look at the YouTube video I have linked in my sources, um, Bailey Sarian, it's Murder Mystery Makeup. She has the link to that documentary in her description. So if you want to check that out, you can take a look. Basically, they interview a bunch of juveniles about this change in the Supreme Court and whatnot and to just you know talk about what they did how they got there things like that now in this documentary it was said that Brian was pretty remorseful and took full responsibility for Cassie's murder Tori on the other hand still refuses to say anything or you know take accountability for anything he did his family seems to think that he is the victim here which we all know is complete and utter bullshit you know, I <laughs> I hate parents like that who just constantly defend their kid as if they can do no wrong. But, you know, looking at it, you go, wow, well, that's how you get kids like Tori 
Oh, and of course, in this film, just to throw that, a documentary, I mean, they did reveal that Tori was inspired by the movie Scream. So, you know, I know we seem see that Brian seems to be the more enthusiastic one in this video. However, Tori's the one who found the inspiration. And given all of that, it seems like maybe he had a bigger role. But again, he's not talking. And his parents won't let you think that he is anything other than a poor victim who shouldn't be locked in jail. <sighs> you know, but of course, we all know, thankfully here, evidence doesn't lie. So that is all I have for you this week, my loves. I hope you all enjoy your weekend and I hope you I hope I hope you all have a wonderful week ahead of you. Please stay safe out there. Don't forget to follow True Crime in Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime in Academia or on Twitter at TC in Academia. Also, if you want to listen to this episode and other episodes ad-free or have access to the bonus uh, Patreon episodes, go to patreon.com slash ivorytowerboilerroom and you can find out how to become a subscriber today. And until next time, my loves, I will see you later. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby, the host and director of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. I am joined with Mary DePippi, our chief contributor and host of True Crime and Academia. Please, if you're not, make sure that you follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime and Academia on Instagram and Twitter. And TikTok, too. Remember our TikTok? That's where all the exciting video clips are posted. Make sure that you join our Patreon if you want more Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime and Academia content. All the video interviews are on our Patreon. All of our bonus episodes are on Patreon. And it just means so much for you to join for $5 a month. You unlock all of our bonus episodes. And also, it just helps support the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thank you so much for giving Mary and I a needed jolt of caffeine for coffee. Thanks for the $5. Head to patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We cannot wait for you all to listen to our summer season. There are so many exciting episodes. And we're also celebrating three years of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. So. Without further ado, thanks for listening. Make sure you listen to the next episode next week. And have a wonderful summer season, everyone. Okay, bye now.